Take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, as we come to the end of this first sermon of Jesus, as he preaches to the crowds that have come to him. Luke chapter 6, and I want to I read this entire sermon for us this morning. It's just a few short verses, really, in the grand scheme of things, but I want us to hear it all, and then we'll focus our minds on just the final verses, verses 46 to 49. Beginning in verse 20, Luke chapter 6 says, And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven." Or in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. He also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? 
A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at a speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. But there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs, thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. But a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Because his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, like a man who built a house upon the ground with out any foundation. The torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. You may not know this, but this is the 50th message from our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have spent 50 hours, roughly, looking at what God gives us in the Gospel of Luke concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is our 14th message in the series in which I have entitled, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? And all along, as I have been teaching our current series on what is a Christian, I have had these words as a subtitle in my notes. The words are this. A Christian is one who shows fruit of obedience in life. A Christian is one who shows fruit of obedience in life. Last Lord's Day, I ended our study in the Gospel of Luke with this statement. Words are cheap. Words are cheap. But they can say everything about what is in our hearts. So a Christian is one who shows obedience or shows the fruit of obedience in life, and yet words are cheap, but they certainly reveal everything about what is in our hearts. In other words, it's easy to say things and those things not actually be true in our life. When it comes to Christianity, there are many within evangelicalism who boast of knowing Jesus, and yet their lives don't reflect that they know Jesus at all. 
As we learned last Lord's Day, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. This is the final words of verse 45. His mouth, that is both the good or the evil, their mouth speak from that which fills the heart. So in the economy of the kingdom of God, in as a child of God, there is this principle taking place, this, this axiomatic principle that is in effect when it comes to the spiritual life. And the principle is this, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That is an axiomatic principle. A bad tree, what is by character and quality, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That is simply to say that if the fruit is fake, if the fruit is rotten, if the fruit is flawed, then you can be rest assured that the treasury of the heart is fake or rotten or flawed. One of the greatest revealers of the heart is what happens to us when earthly tragedy comes upon us. There's a whole lot of places we could go to in the Bible to read about earthly tragedies, things that happened throughout the history of mankind, and the various responses that we see in Scripture when those tragedies take place. But I want to remind us this morning, just by way of example, as we begin to kind of introduce ourselves to, to what Jesus is saying here in these final verses, I want us to look at what happened to Job just really quickly. And the immediate response of how Job responded to what happened to him. You can go back to the Old Testament if you want to see this. It is really rather an incredible place to see what goes on in the heart of Job. You don't have to spend a long time there to see it, but I think it's very clear when we just simply look at the text itself. In Job chapter 1, it tells us that Job was a man of the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, he was upright, fearing God, and therefore he was turning away from evil. Job was blameless, upright, Fearing God, those are the qualities of a man whose heart is directed in the right place. Turning away from evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He had ten children, and his possessions were massive. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oak of yoxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. The man was the greatest of all the men of the East. This was the guy. This was the the richest man in the world at the time. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. What that means is they, they would go to their sibling's house on their birthday. They would have a birthday party for one another. We do those kinds of things. They're great opportunities for us to celebrate. And they would send invitations to their sisters, and they would come over and they would have this large feast and it came about in the days when they were feasting, a complete circle, they had completed their circle of all the children that Job would send and 
consecrate them, rising early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all, because Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned, cursed God in their hearts. Job did that continually. So Job was a man who had a lot. His children lived under the grace of all of that in God's economy, and yet Job was concerned that their lives might be such that Job went to God and just had this relationship with God regularly on behalf of them. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. This is the picture now, takes a picture back and looks at more of the glory of heaven. And all the created beings in the angelic realm go before the Lord, and Satan comes before him as well. And the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? And he said, I've been roaming about the earth, walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's an implication there that Satan is simply saying, I've been going around the earth and I've been looking for somebody to harass and and I really haven't found one. You protected them all. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Why? Because there's none like him on earth. He's a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Once again, those same characteristics of verse 1 are now reiterated once again in verse 8, clearly showing us Job is a godly man. And of course, Satan accuses God of protecting him for nothing. Does Job fear God for nothing? You've built a hedge around him, the house, and all that he has on every side. You've blessed his work, his possessions. He's increased in the land. I mean, all this is what you've done. He's had no trouble in his life, Lord. Satan says, put your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you. And so the Lord says to Satan, behold, all he has is in your power. Only don't put your hand against him tells us something about Satan. Satan doesn't have the power over God. Satan just can't do whatever he wants. He's, he too is under control of God himself. And God in his providential wisdom and care for Job, we can say, why would God do that to a man of God who is a godly man who serves God? The answer to that question is we don't know. God doesn't give us the answer, but we know this. God is always good, and God is always glorifying His name and doing what is best for His people. So in this is a, is a lesson for us as well about God and about what God does in our life. It's always good. And so the text goes on to say it happened on the day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking again. Another cycle of the birthdays had gone. They're in their brother's house. The messenger comes and says the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabbateans attacked and took them. They slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped. And while he's still speaking, another one comes and says the fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep, and the servants consumed them, and I alone have escaped. And while he was speaking, another one came in and said the Chaldeans formed three bands and made raids on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped. And while he's still speaking, another one comes in, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine. Their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind from across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people, and they've all died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Quite a day. Job loses everything in a moment. All of his riches, servants, everything he has, even his own children, gone in a moment all at the hands of the providential plan of God. And this is what shocks us. It should not really shock us because this is the reality of one who follows God. Job arose 
tore his robe, shaved his head. That's what they did when they were mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. It's been a bad day. Been a horrific moment in Job's life, and Job worships. Why? Because Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all that, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Why? Because Job was an upright, God-fearing man turning away from evil. Job was a Christian. He was a believer in who God was. And again, that doesn't seem bad enough for Job. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Chapter 2, Satan comes along again. Where have you been? Been roaming about the earth, walking around in it. Have you considered my servant Job? We don't know how much time has gone by. We don't know what Job's life has been like since that very moment. We do know this, that Job was a worshiper of God. He didn't blame God, and Job did not sin. So Job was still a blameless man, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, even in light of all that had taken place in his life. We don't know what his economic situation was from that moment. Of course, Satan accuses God once again. He holds fast to his integrity because you protect him, Lord. Skin for skin, verse 4. All this man has, he'll give for his life. Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse your face. God says, he's under your power, but spare his life. And you can do whatever you want physically to Job, but you're not going to be able to take his life. His life is in my hand. You cannot do that. In fact, you can only do that when I allow it, and I'm certainly not allowing it here. So Satan goes forth. And of course, we see what happens with Job in verse 7. Job is struck with sores, boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. His entire body is covered in some kind of physical disease. So much so that the only relief he can get is from breaking pottery and scraping himself sitting among the ashes. And even his wife gets in on the Job bashing. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Why do you still uphold and trust the Lord? Just curse God and he will take your life. It'll be over. Job says to her, you're as one of the foolish women. Shall indeed we accept good from God and not accept adversity? We could write that in the words of Job 20, or or I mean Job 1 verse 20, right? Job fell to the ground and worshiped. That's the same thing. Shall we indeed accept good from God, but not accept adversity? And in all this, Job what? Did not sin with his lips. Shocking. Tragedy strikes this man's life 
all that is recorded for us in Scripture, we find Job responding to these things with worship, with honor, with trusting God. Why? Because Job feared God, and therefore Job carried his life in obedience to the Word of God. I think it's an important start for us because it is possible to profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ but not be a doer of His Word. James is clear that we are not to be simply hearers only, we are to be doers of the Word. It is possible to claim, to profess, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and yet not be a doer of His Word. I believe this is the clear intent of the words of Jesus as we read the final words of His sermon here. Notice what He says, verse 46, Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The term Lord implies an understanding of authority. Why, why are you professing and proclaiming that I have authority in you and with your life, and yet you do not do what I say? It implies an understanding of the master-discipleship relationship. That Jesus Christ is the master. He is the authority. To say it twice, Lord, Lord, only heightens the, the absolute magnitude of those who profess allegiance upon the one to whom this title is given. Lord, Lord. So to call Jesus Lord, to repeat it, to call Him Lord, Lord, only heightens the reality that we understand just who He is, and that He is worthy of obedience. Remember what Jesus said earlier? Why? Why are you exercising judgmentalism? That's my way of putting it. Verse 41 is how He states it. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's judgmentalism. In other words, a true disciple in the kingdom is to be discerning about all things. We are to be able to make judgments about things. We are to be able to look and make discerning judgments, but not in a judgmental way. We are not to exercise our discernment in a judgmental way. As if we are the ones who arrived, we are better and now, now here Jesus is in His sermon and He's revealing even more clearly that words expose the contents of the treasury of our heart. Those words certainly in verse 41 would expose the contents of the heart, right? Why do you say to your brother, let me take out the speck, when you have this own, your own issue in your heart, you are to be discerning not only about others, but discerning and honest about your own life. You're your heart shows your hypocrisy. So Jesus here in verse 46 saying, why? why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do what I say? 
in the crowd, just like every church within evangelicalism today, there were those who were self-appointed and self-deluded disciples. They had come to Jesus to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, but not do what Jesus said. They were not obedient to His Word. Why? Because words are cheap. Words are cheap. And so Jesus warns us and Jesus teaches us here what is the true character of His followers. First, He gives instruction and then the warning. Instruction and warning. The instruction is in verse 47. The warning is found in verses 48 and 49. And the warning is a picture. It's a picture of the end results, really, of two houses. One house remains strong, and the other house is completely destroyed. Need I remind us when I say that, that there is no third house. Only two. Only two houses here. There is no third house telling us there is no middle ground. There is no straddling of the fence. There is no one foot over here and another foot here. There is no fixer-upper house in the middle of both of these two houses. There's only two houses. Jesus, of course, is implying that there are only two ends in eternity. There is no third way. Only two houses, only two endings. And of course, these homes represent the lives of those in the crowd to whom he is talking represents the lives of the Pharisees. It represents the lives of all who have come to Him. And in the end, they will either stand strong or they will collapse depending on what they do with the words of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. These houses stand or fall depending on what they do with the words of Jesus Christ. The contrast is striking. It is being made here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say? Because everyone who comes to me, verse 47, and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. That is the crux of the issue. We cannot miss the emphasis that Jesus is making at the end of His message. The emphasis being made is this. Faithful disciples, true, authentic disciples keep coming to Christ, they keep hearing Christ, and they keep doing what Christ says. That is the emphasis. To say it another way, Jesus is using an exclusive universality in his language to describe genuine disciples. Universal in the sense that this is true of every true disciple, and yet it's exclusive only to those who are his disciples. He is drawing the line in the sand. There is no middle ground. You're either in one side or the other. All of those who are authentic disciples Continue in all three of these actions. 
Authentic disciples come, they hear, and they do. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you, by way of example, what the life of an authentic disciple is like in comparison to that of an inauthentic disciple. Told you about kingdom living. I've written to you. I've I've spoken to you about what it means to be in the kingdom, a child of mine. I'm going to show you a picture of what that looks like. All three of these actions, coming, hearing, and doing, are important. All are necessary. But especially the last one. Especially acting, doing. That is to say that they are all essential. They cannot skip any. But you notice as you just look at this and kind of analyze it from a, from a distance back, you notice that the first two, that is coming and hearing, are done by both authentic and non-authentic disciples. It's the final action that shows the difference. It's the final action that that reveals the truality of the grounding of the disciple. It's the final action that really reveals the heart. Therefore, the ends have vastly different results. Doing what Jesus says, that is the demarcation line. That is the line by which we must draw if we're going to stand in the face of life's tragedies like Job. If we're going to worship, if we're going to show ourselves to be who we say we are, then it's the doing that will show that. To say the least of revealing our final destination in the end. So let's quickly look at these three actions. Number one, true discipleship or authentic discipleship always begins with coming to Christ. Authentic discipleship always begins with coming to Christ. Verse 47, Jesus says, everyone who comes to me. Everyone who comes to me. Authentic and eternally lasting discipleship always begins with coming to Christ. Now, I do not mean in that by saying that a coming to Christ by means of faith, although we understand that true discipleship is an exercise of the faith that's granted to us by God. But I just mean coming to Christ in the sense of proximity, being around Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, that implies an attachment to him authentically or inauthentically. In other words, those who truly are saved have come to Christ. They have come to Christ by faith. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They have repented of their sins, turned from wickedness to righteousness. And yet, and yet, even here in the illustration Jesus gives, there are many who are not saved who have come to Christ. Certainly we don't mean by that by saying that there are some who are not saved who were saved at one point and therefore lost their salvation. You cannot have that. They didn't come to Christ by faith. They came to Christ by presumption. 
assuming that being around Jesus, being near Jesus, you've heard me call it proximity Christianity, thinking that if I'm in and around the people of God, or if I'm in and around the church, or if I'm in some religious organization, then that's what it means to be a Jesus follower or be a Christian. Both groups, varying degrees of both groups, were in the crowd that Jesus was preaching to. We know of the twelve, Jesus, even earlier, as we've studied in the Gospel of Luke, went away and prayed one night, came back down, and out of this vast group called twelve, named them apostles. We saw who they were. There were surely others in the crowd who were genuine in their desire to follow Jesus. They, they had come to Jesus. They had come with this understanding of their own sin. They had come knowing that they were poor and that they had nothing to offer to God in and of themselves. They had come hungry for the righteousness of Christ. They had come weeping over their own sin. They were, they were those who were being cast out even of the synagogue because they had claimed the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, believing it. So there were those in the crowd as well who were following Jesus, but there were also those in that great crowd who were not that. They came just to see the show. They came to just see Jesus do something miraculous. It's no different in the church today. No different. The Word word of God is taught. The Word of God is preached. Many come. Many come to be with Jesus. Some are genuine. Some are not. Interesting reality is they all begin at the same place. All starts at the feet of Jesus. What do they come to do? Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words. Number one, we come. Number two, authentic discipleship begins with Jesus and wants to hear from Jesus. Wants to hear from Jesus. They come and hear my words. It's interesting that Jesus would say that because some were there and they were not hearing what Jesus was saying. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 27? We spent some time on that several weeks ago. But I say to you who hear. He speaks in a general reality as to the difference between the kingdom citizen and the one who is a citizen of the world. And he differentiates that reality in the comparison between the blessed one and those who are under the woe of judgment, beginning in verse 21 through 26. And then after that, right after that, he says, but I say to you who hear. He's saying that to all the people who are within earshot of his voice, but his words and the intent of his words are only for those who are the hearing ones. In other words, some were not hearing, not because they were physically hearing impaired, or because the voice of Jesus was somehow an inaudible voice. No, they were not hearing because they were not listening and were not receiving what he said. They were listening to Jesus, 
as if they were sitting on an airplane waiting to back out from the tarmac. And the flight attendant comes on and says, I have a safety briefing for you. I've done it a thousand times. I, I could almost say the briefing. I've heard it so many times. I don't really listen to it. I hear it. I hear what's happening. I hear what they're saying. But I'm not listening. I'm not listening to it. There are a lot of reasons why people don't listen. But the point is that many Christians today hear the Word of God the same way they hear that briefing on an airplane. The moment that God's Word begins to be heard, it is check out. We chuckle about this somewhat in the office during the week because we give announcements here in our church every week at the beginning and some people go, hey, is this happening this week? And we made that announcement just that morning. That's what we do. It's noise to us. It's background noise. We do that with the Word of God. We check out. We don't take it as it's being said. And so when the time comes for action, guess what? We don't and we cannot follow the Word of God. Why? Because we don't know what it said. We didn't hear it. Sad reality is that we live in days when the modern church is growing less and less tolerable to the Word of God. People don't want to have their lives challenged by the Word of God. They want to have their ears tickled. Church is being replaced with entertainment. We've convinced ourselves in our own heart at times that we're that we've come to Jesus, we're, we're a follower of Jesus, and we convince ourselves that watching whatever's happening at the church on TV is church. It's better than actually being with the people because it's easier for me. Our personal preferences, our personal fears rule rule our lives more than the truth of God. All the while we say we're a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, beloved, the outworking of coming to Jesus and hearing Jesus is doing what Jesus says. Doing it. Authentic disciples of Jesus come to Jesus, they hear Jesus, and it shows because they do what Jesus says. Everyone who comes to me, verse 47, and hears my words, number three, acts upon them. Acts upon them. That is to say that every time we hear the Word of God, we must be resolved to act upon it. Most of the time, it will not be a huge action that we are doing. Most of the time, it will not be this significant, massive reality. It will just be small, incremental movements 
that will amount to much over time. It will be a truth that we are proclaiming because we heard that truth. It will be a sin that we are forsaking because we heard that that is something wrong that maybe we never thought was wrong in our life. It will be a challenge to some area in our life whereby we are challenged to change our thinking, to have our mind renewed by the Word of God, and in small ways we have to listen to it and we have to do it. Maybe it's just an attitude change. Because we realize in our own attitude that we sinfully assume upon people and the worst of others that that is the character of our heart when we see someone and we, we, we don't like what they say or we're not, we're not fully understanding what we say. We assume the worst about them and the Word of God has convicted us about that. And so upon hearing the Word of God, we begin to think differently and our attitude changes. Maybe it's a a change at the workplace in the way we share our faith. Maybe it is that in the workplace we're just fearful and we're fearful of what the climate is in our culture and all the the wokeism that's out there and nobody wants to have any truth spoken to them at all and so we're cowering and quiet and while we know we're there for our employer to do the job that they hired us for, there are opportunities whereby other employees are asking us, what's the deal with our life? Why are we so different? And instead of taking those opportunities, we sit back and don't do what we ought. And maybe the Word of God has convicted us about that so that now we begin to exercise boldness. We trust what God has said. Little change, maybe a big change, the key is the same. Are we doing the Word? Are we doing the Word? We cannot be those who procrastinate and take the great truth that we hear and just leave it on the spiritual library shelf. Can't do that. You have to do it. When we do what Jesus says, we are showing ourselves to be authentic disciples. That's what we are. So when Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He is talking about what He is preaching about. He's talking about what He has just said. Why do you call me Lord and yet you do not take seriously what I'm saying to you right now? My disciples obey me. Like John 10 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me because they hear my voice. Jesus says, my disciples obey me. Well, what has he been saying? Well, he certainly has been saying that true disciples measure themselves by God's standard, not man's standard. Right? Verses 20 through 26, right? This is the one who enters the kingdom of heaven, the the poor, the hungry, the the weeping, the ostracized. Those, that's, that's the ones who are truly my disciples. They're the ones who follow me that way. That's the blessed one. It's not the one in the way the world operates, the rich, the well-fed, the, the ones who are 
joyful now because they don't think about their sin at all, and that all men love, woe to them. He's saying, my, my disciples think rightly about their own heart. They, they measure themselves by God's standard, not man's. And then he said, my disciples hear and do the kind of love that, that I do. And he talked about that in verses 27 to 36. Right? They love their enemies. They do good to those who hate them. Jesus is saying all of that, all of that kind of love is unnatural for the fallen heart. All of that is unnatural. It's the unnatural fall, uh, outflow of, of those who, who know me. Why? Because the regenerate heart, the one who sees itself rightly, lives out the love that I command because they know me and they hear my voice. Those are authentic disciples. Doing what is unnatural to a fallen heart is possible for us because of the supernatural living within us. It's not what we conjure up. It's because we have the Spirit of God living in us. And so when Jesus commands us to do something that goes against our natural grain, we can do it. We can do it with His help. That's what disciples do. And as we learned last Lord's Day, true disciples practice non-judgmental discernment. True disciples practice non-judgmental discernment. We saw that in verse 37 all the way through verse 45. Authentic disciples put into practice the discernment of Jesus. We reject a judgmental attitude. Why? Because we know that the good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces that which is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces that what's evil. Why? Because the withdrawals are made from the treasury of the heart. That's the task of the authentic disciple. We acknowledge Him as Lord, and therefore we do what He says. And to do the words of Jesus shows itself in the outcome of a life. Particularly in the midst of tragedy. Notice verse 48. In verse 47, Jesus said, I'll show you, show the one who he's like, who, who comes to me, hears my words and does them. He's like a man, verse 48, building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation upon the rock. When the flood rose, the torrent burst against that house, could not shake it. Why? Because it had been built well. That's what the authentic disciple is to be compared to. That's the question. To what is the authentic disciple compared to? The answer is a vivid picture, and we all can understand it. It's not too complicated. It's not outside the realm of our thinking. The man who is the authentic disciple who hears the words of God because he came to Jesus, he hears Jesus' words, he acts upon them, he's likened to a man who engaged in a building project. He went out to build his home. He dug deep. Means it wasn't quick. It was hard work. It was arduous work. It was sweat labor kind of work. He dug deep and he put the foundation for the home, notice, not on the dirt. He didn't lay it on the dirt itself. 
He laid it on the rock. He put his foundation under the dirt and under the sand. He went down to the bedrock. That's the implication of the word for rock there in the original language. The word's Petra, the same word Jesus used for Peter. And yet he was talking about the reality of, of the righteousness of Christ that this is built on. Foundation rock. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that this house was more elaborate than the others. He doesn't say it was bigger than all of the other houses around it. It's not described in that way at all. It's not even described any other way that is even more elaborate or more extravagant than the house that's described in verse 49. Why? Because none of that matters in the illustration. Doesn't matter. What matters is what it's built on. The point is the same. This home is resting upon the rock. And the reason for tying to the bedrock becomes absolutely clear when you read what comes. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation upon the rock, and when the flood rose, when the torrent burst against the house, so the flood comes, the water rises, It beats against the house. The waves are crashing. They are smashing against the home. It shakes the home. And in the end, the home is still standing. Why? Because it was well built. Implication, it was tied to the rock. It was tied to the rock. Implication, it came to Jesus. It heard the words of Jesus. And it did what Jesus said. So the house is representative of the life of a man. Man built and founded his life on the words of Jesus Christ. Because he's tied to the rock. Oh, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree, firmly planted in by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, and its fruit is produced in season. But the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. The righteous will stand in the judgment. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's what Psalm 1 says. The reverse is also true. Verse 49, the one who has heard, implying that they have come, they've heard, so those two things are the same, but they have not acted They're like the man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation. It was quick. It was easy. Torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. The ruin of that house was megas. Great. 
you notice there's only one slight change, and yet the outcome is radically different. Only one slight change to it all, and yet the outcome couldn't be more stark. This one here came to Jesus. This one here heard the words of Jesus, but he did not do the words of Jesus. In fact, the grammar here indicates that this man was done with hearing the words of Jesus. He came to Jesus, he was hearing Jesus, and he said, I've had enough of Jesus. This is enough of Jesus. I'm finished with Jesus, and therefore I'm finished with the doing of what He says. He wanted no more of it. And so it says His home was built on the sand. Built on the ground. No digging necessary for this kind of house. Just lay the foundation on the earth. His home rested on nothing but what was earthly, worldly. What it rested on, it had no real foundation. It was built on nothing solid. In fact, it even says this house was built upon the ground without any foundation. Both the houses were built. Both of them were an edifice. Both of them even looked the same for a time. And yet this one was built without a foundation. Why? It was easier to build. It was easier to build. Why? Easy is easy. It's easy to do easy, isn't it? It's easy to do easy. Takes less time, less effort. No sweat. Goes up quick. Might even be big. Might even be spacious. And as long as it's sunny, as long as everything's good, as long as the wind's not blowing, as long as the river doesn't rise, no problem. But when the storm comes, so does the demise. Crashes to the ground, immediately collapses. The love of the inauthentic disciple collapses under pressure. And when the final tragedy of death comes, the ruin of the house is great. Great. Could have been so different. Could have been so different. Disciples hearing the Word of God. But they do nothing with it show themselves to not really be disciples at all. And yet disciples who hear the Word of God, who reflect upon it, who receive it, who put it into practice, stand up in the day of tragedy. They're not crushed. So-called disciples who hear but do not reflect and do not receive and do not put it into practice, they do not stand in the day of tragedy. This is why Job remained a worshiper. This is why Job remained a worshiper. When we read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, and you see the tragedy that took place in Job's life, we know why Job could stand amongst the tragedy. Because Job dug deep. Job founded his life, his house, upon the rock. 
That's the only reason he could give glory to God in those dark days. That's the only reason Job could say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the only reason Job could say to his wife, shall we accept good and not adversity from God? Blessed be the name of God. Because Job had founded his life on the rock. It's the only way we can stand through tragedy and stand in eternity to found it on the rock. Late Leon Morris put it this way, well, when the final test comes at Judgment Day, it is the foundation on which our lives are built that matters. The words certainly have an application to the storms in life, as I have been implying here. There are certainly the tragedies of life that come, and, and certainly standing on the rock gives us that robustness to stand in the midst of that, even though we feel the emotional struggle and pain of life. The person with a good foundation isn't easily upset with all the difficulties that come. But Leon Morris says, but it is the supreme final test that is especially in the mind of Jesus here. I think he's right. I think he's right in the context. Those who are doers of the word will endure to the end. Not because they're the ones who are righteous in and of themselves, but because they are standing on Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It is those words that are ringing in the ears of the people as Jesus ends his sermon. I wonder sometimes if there would have been just this silent hush over the crowd. Jesus begins his sermon with, Blessed are you, and he ends with his sermon, and the ruin of that house was great. Who in their right mind would build so as to find ruin in the end? Who in their right mind would do that? Sad reality is that there are many who find that way. There are many who go that direction. Why? Because the way of life with Jesus is the narrow way. It is the hard way. It is the Digging down deep way. And few there are who find it. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who shows fruit of obedience in life. Why? Because a Christian is one who is a hearer and a doer of the word. So are we listening? Are we listening? Or is the music just playing in the background. Only two houses that are being built, one with foundations and one without. Here's the question. What house is yours? What house is yours? Let's pray.
Father, this morning, like the waves crashing against the house, the words are heavy. Yet we know as your disciples, you call us to evaluation. Paul said to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves. Lord, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the treasuries of a heart, life flows. We know this side of heaven, there is no perfection in our actions, even though we are perfected in Christ before you. But there is a striving. There is a desire and a striving after the things of you. And so when we hear your word, Lord, may we be those who follow your word, knowing that by your spirit we can do what you've asked, even if it is hard to do. And when we fail to do that, Lord, may we run to you, run to you with that mournful heart, knowing our sin, begging and thanking you for the mercy that you have granted us in Christ. So that we, in those moments, would sense the reality of our joy in Christ and be able to walk once again in obedience to you. We know the war is on every day. The accuser is always there attacking. Sadly, we follow and believe the lie. But you have granted us your spirit. You have given us new life. We can do what you ask. Help us, Lord, by your grace to fulfill that in our life so that you might be glorified in us in the greatest of ways so that when we come to be face-to-face with Christ, all of those rewards you give us, we lay at his feet thanking you for all that you accomplished through us by him so that you receive all the glory. Is this we ask in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.